welcome to the Crack Open a Classic podcast, the podcast where I read a chapter or two, an episode aloud, ask questions to help you think about the chapter, and open the world of classics to you. So grab a cup of coffee or tea, and let's jump into the chapter. Chapter 23, Agre Somnia, Bitter Dreams. On the following day, the 10th of January, the Nautilus continued her course underwater at a speed which I estimated at not less than 35 miles an hour. Her propeller turned so fast I could neither follow nor count its revolutions, and I considered how this powerful electrical energy propelled her, provided the Nautilus with heat and light, defended her from outside attacks, and transformed her into a forbidden object, which no profane hand might touch without being electrocuted, my admiration knew no bounds, an admiration that was easily transferred from the craft to the engineer who had conceived it. We headed directly west, and on the 11th of January we doubled Cape Wessel, situated at longitude 135 degrees and latitude 10 degrees north, which forms the eastern point of the Gulf of Carpentaria. The reefs were still numerous, but more sparsely scattered, and were indicated on the map with perfect precision. The Nautilus easily avoided the Money Shoals to port and the Victoria Reefs to starboard, situated at longitude 130 on the 10th parallel, which we were following faithfully. On the 13th of January, Captain Nemo reached the Sea of Timor, came upon the island of that name at longitude 122 degrees. This island, whose area covers 1,625 square leagues, is governed by Rajas. These princes claim to be sons of the crocodiles, that is to say, the most noblest descent to which a human being can lay claim. Moreover, their scaly ancestors swarm in all the rivers of the island and are the object of great veneration. They are protected, pampered, adulated, and fed. Young maidens are offered to them for food, and woe to the strangers who lifts a hand against these sacred lizards. But the Nautilus had no reason to quarrel with these animals. The island of Timor was visible only for a moment at noon when the second command charted her position. Hence, I could only catch a glimpse of the little island of Roti, part of the same archipelago where women enjoy a very well-established reputation for their beauty on the Malayan markets. From this point, the Nautilus veered to the southwest in the direction of the Indian Ocean. Where would Captain Nemo's fancies take us next? Would he return toward the coasts of Asia or approach the shores of Europe? Either alternative was improbable for a man who was a fugitive from inhabited continents. Would he sail toward the south? Would he double the Cape of Good Hope, then Cape Horn, and go as far as the South Pole? Would he return again to the seas of the Pacific, where his Nautilus could roam with ease and independence? Only the future could tell. After skirting the reefs of Cartier, Harber Hibernia, Serengapatam, and Scott, final symbols of the struggle between land and sea, we lost sight of the land altogether on the 14th of January. The Nautilus slowed down noticeably, and changing her direction as she saw fit, sometimes cruised in the depths of the waters and sometimes floated on the surface. During this stage of the voyage, Captain Nemo conducted some interesting experiments on the varying temperatures of the sea at different levels. Under normal conditions, such information is obtained by using rather complicated instruments which must be lowered from the surface and whose results are, at best, questionable. If thermometric soundings are used, the glass often shatters under the pressure of the water. If an apparatus is used that functions on the principle of resistance of metals to electrical current, the results cannot be accurately controlled. Captain Nemo, on the other hand, was able to go down in person to take the temperatures in different levels of the sea. 
and his thermometers in direct contact with these different levels provided him immediately and reliably with the data sought. Thus, either by filling her tanks or by descending obliquely using her inclined fins, the Nautilus could submerge to depths of 3, 4, 5, 7, 9, and 10,000 meters. The final result of these experimentations was that the sea maintained at a depth of 1,000 meters in any latitude a permanent temperature of four and a half degrees centigrade or 40 degrees Fahrenheit. I followed these experiments with intense interest. Captain Nemo threw himself passionately into his work. I often asked myself what his purpose was in collecting this information. Was it for the benefit of his fellow beings? That was unlikely because sooner or later his labors were destined to perish with him in some unknown sea unless he intended to bequeath the results of his experiments to me. But that, of course, would presuppose an end to this strange voyage, an end that was not foreseeable as yet. Whatever the case, the captain nevertheless informed me of the different figures he had obtained and which established the relative densities of the water in the principal seas of the globe. From the information he gave me, I drew a personal lesson that had nothing to do with science. It was during the morning of the 15th of January. The captain, with whom I was strolling on the platform, asked me whether I knew the different densities of the seawaters. I answered in the negative and added that scientific research had not provided reliable information in this field. I have obtained this information, he said to me, and I can assure you of its accuracy. Fine, I replied, but the Nautilus is a world of its own, and the secrets of its scientists are not shared by others. You are right, Professor, he said after a short silence. It is a world part. It is as foreign to the earth as are the planets which accompany this globe around the sun. One will never know the work of the scientists on Saturn or on Jupiter are doing. However, since chance has joined our destinies, I can tell you the results of my observations. I am listening, Captain. You know, Professor, that seawater is denser than freshwater, but this density is not uniform. In fact, if I represent the density of freshwater at once, I find a density of 1 in 26 thousandths in the waters of the Pacific, and 1 in 28 thousandths in the waters of the Atlantic, and 1 in 30 thousandths in the waters of the Mediterranean. Ah, I thought he does venture in the Mediterranean. 1 in 18 thousandths in the waters of the Ionian Sea, and 1 in 29 thousandths in the waters of the Adriatic. Decidedly, the Nautilus did not shun the frequented seas of Europe, and I concluded that he would take us, before long perhaps, toward more civilized continents. I thought Ned Land would learn of this with understandable satisfaction. For several days, our time was spent studying the salinity of the water at different depths, its electric qualities, its coloring, and its transparency. At all times, Captain Nemo displayed an ingenuity that was equaled only by his gracious conduct toward me. Then, for a few days, he would disappear, and I would live once more in isolation. On the 16th of January, the Nautilus appeared to lie dormant, just a few meters beneath the surface of the waves. Her electrical equipment was switched off, and her motionless propeller left her to drift at the mercy of the current. I imagine that the members of the crew were busy making repairs, necessitated perhaps by the strain caused by the continuous working of the ship's mechanisms. My companions and I were witnesses to a strange spectacle. The saloon hatches were open, and since the searchlight of the Nautilus was not in use, a vague darkness reigned in the midst of the water. My companions and I were then witnesses to a strange spectacle. The saloon hatches were open, and since the searchlight of the Nautilus was not in use, a vague darkness reigned in the midst of the water. The storming sky, covered with dense clouds, gave only a murky light to the upper level of the ocean. 
I was observing that with the sea in these conditions, even the largest fish appeared as scarcely definable shadows. Suddenly, however, the Nautilus was immersed in a bright light. I thought at first that the searchlight had been turned on and that it was projecting its electric beams into the liquid mass. I was wrong. After a quick look, I realized my error. The Nautilus was floating in a phosphorescent aura, which was dazzling in the darkness. It was caused by myriads of luminous animalcules whose brilliance was intensified as they glided over the metal hull of the submarine. Then I caught the sight of flashes of light in the midst of these luminous swarms, resembling molten lead poured in white-hot furnaces or metallic masses brought to red-white heat, which was the brightness that, by contrast, certain luminous areas actually cast shadows amid this blaze where all shadows should have vanished. No! It was no longer the soft radiancy of our usual light. This light possessed an unprecedented vitality and intensity. This was a living light. This was indeed infinite agglomeration of pelagic infusoria, globules of diaphanous jelly provided with thread-like tentacles. As many as 25,000 of them had been counted in 30 cubic centimeters of water. Their light was further in intensified by the phosphorescence peculiar to the medusa, starfish, ariella, pittix, and other luminous zoophytes, impregnated with the tissues of organic matter decomposed by the sea and perhaps with the mucus secreted by the fish. For several hours, the nautilus floated in these glittering waves, and our wonder grew as we watched the great marine animals playing in their midst like salamanders in the midst of this fire, that did not burn, I saw those swift, elegant porpoises, tireless clowns of the ocean, swordfish up to three meters long, intelligent prophets of the storm whose formidable blades sometimes struck the panels of the saloon. Then some smaller fish appeared on the scene, the triggerfish, the leaping mackerel, the wolffish, and hundreds of others which streaked darkly through the luminous water. This dazzling spectacle held a spellbound. Perhaps certain atmospheric conditions increased the intensity of this phenomenon, or perhaps a storm was churning the waters above the surface of the sea, but at a depth of a few meters the Nautilus lay undisturbed by its fury. She rocked gently in those quiet waters. As we proceeded on our journey, we were always enchanted by new wonders. Conseil observed and classified his zoophytes, his articulata, his mollusks and fish. The days sped by, and I no longer counted them. Ned naturally tried to vary the ship's menu like snails. We were indeed becoming attached to our shells— and I declare, it is easy enough to become a perfect snail. We seem to have become so accustomed to this natural manner of living that we no longer thought any other existed in this world. However, an incident occurred that soon reminded us of our strange situation. On the 18th of January, the Nautilus was at longitude 105 degrees, latitude 15 degrees south. The weather was threatening, the sea was rough and turbulent, the wind blew violently from the east, the barometer, which had been dropping for days, indicated a coming storm. I climbed up on the platform just as the second-in-command was taking our position. I waited as usual for him to pronounce his daily phrase, but on that day he substituted another no less incomprehensible. Almost immediately I saw Captain Nemo appear. He studied the horizon with the aid of a spyglass. For a few moments, the captain stood motionless without taking his eyes off the point he was observing with his spyglass. Then he lowered his spyglass and exchanged a few words with his second-in-command. The latter appeared to be in the throes of an emotion that he was trying vainly to control. Captain Nemo, more in command of himself, remained cool. He appeared to raise certain objections to which the second-in-command replied with formal assurances. 
At least that is what I inferred from the differences of their tone and gestures. I also looked intently in the direction indicated but saw nothing. Sky and water blended in a perfect clean line on the horizon. Meanwhile, Captain Nemo kept pacing from one end of the platform to the other without looking at me, perhaps without even seeing me. His gait was firm, but less regular than usual. Sometimes he stopped with his arms folded across his chest. He gazed at the sea. What could he be looking for on that vast expanse? The Nautilus was hundreds of miles from the nearest shore. The second-in-command had again taken up his spyglass and was obstinately peering at the horizon. He paced to and fro, stamped his feet. His agitated state was in sharp contrast to that of the captain. The mystery was soon to be revealed, and before long, on Captain Nemo's orders, the vessel increased her speed. Once more, the second-in-command called for the captain's attention. Nemo pointed his spyglass in the direction indicated. He observed for a long time. Very much intrigued, I went down to the saloon and brought up an excellent telescope that I normally used, then leaning on the searchlight cage, which jutted out at the fore of the platform, I began to scan the horizon. But no sooner had I put the telescope to my eye, when it was violently snatched from my hands. I turned around. Captain Nemo stood before me, but I no longer recognized him. His features were transformed, his eyes lighting up menacingly. He sank back beneath his furrowed brows, with his teeth set, his body stiff, his fists clenched, and his head hunched between his shoulders. He betrayed a hatred that pervaded his whole person. He did not stir. My telescope, which had fallen from his hand, rolled to his feet. Had I, without wishing to do so, provoked this anger? Did this unfathomable person think that I had discovered some secret that was forbidden to the guests of the Nautilus? No! I was not the object of his hatred, for he was not looking at me. His eyes remained obstinately fixed upon that mysterious point on the horizon. At last, Captain Nemo recovered his habitual calm. He addressed a few words to his lieutenant in that language foreign to me. Then he turned toward me. Monsieur Aronnax, he said in a somewhat commanding tone, I am asking you to observe one of the conditions of our bargain. What is that, Captain? You must be confined, you and your companions, and not until I decide to grant you your freedom again. You are the master, I replied, looking him in the eye. But may I ask you one question? None, monsieur. I had no choice but to obey, since my resistance would have been impossible. I went down to the cabin occupied by Ned and Conseil, and I informed them of the captain's decision. You can imagine how this news was received by the Canadian. There was, besides, no time for explanations. Four men of the crew were waiting at the door, and they conducted us to the cell where we had spent our first night aboard the Nautilus. Ned Land ventured to complain. There was no answer. The door was closed behind him. "'Can Monsieur tell me what this is all about?' Conseil asked me. I told my companions what had happened. They were as astonished as I, but equally puzzled. Meanwhile, I was deep in thought. I could not rid my mind of the strange fear that had possessed Captain Nemo. I found it impossible to connect two logical ideas, and I was soon involved in the most absurd suppositions. I was aroused from my engrossing thoughts by Ned Land. "'Well, lunch is served!' Indeed, the table had been set. It was evident that Captain Nemo had given this order at the same time that he had ordered the speed of the Nautilus to be increased. "'Will Monsieur allow me to make a suggestion?' Conseil asked me. "'Yes, my lad,' I replied. "'Well, sir, I suggest that Monsieur eat his repast. It would be wise because we never know what may happen.' You are right, Conseil. Unfortunately, said Ned Land, they've only given us the usual fare. Ned, my friend, retorted Conseil, what would you have, have said had there been no meal at all? This reasoning cut short any further complaints from the harpooner. We sat down. 
The meal passed in relative silence. I ate little, Conseil forced himself, in the interest of prudence, and Ned Land, in spite of himself, did not miss a bite. When the repast was over, each withdrew into a corner. Just then, the luminous sphere that lit the cell went out, and we were left in total darkness. Ned Land lost no time in falling asleep, and to my surprise, Conseil also allowed himself to sink into a deep slumber. I wondered what would have been the reason for this irresistible need to sleep, when I also felt my brain overcome by an intense drowsiness. I tried to keep my eyes open, but they kept closing despite my efforts. A painful suspicion crossed my mind. Evidently, some sedative had been put in the food that we had just eaten. The prison alone, then, was not enough to conceal the plans of Captain Nemo. He had felt the need of putting us to sleep also. I heard the hatches close, the motions of the waves, which had caused the ship to roll slightly, ceased. Had the Nautilus left the surface of the ocean? Had she submerged again into the quiet depths of the waters? I tried to fight off my drowsiness. It was impossible. My breathing grew weaker. I felt a mortal chill, freezing my heavy, almost paralyzed limbs. My eyelids, like leaden seals, fell over my eyes. Now I could not raise them. A morbid sleep, full of delusions, overwhelmed my whole being. Then the visions disappeared and left me in a state of oblivion. Questions to consider after reading. Where do you think the Nautilus is going next? Have you ever seen jellyfish like the ones Aranax describes? What do you think the second-in-command and Nemo see on the horizon? Why do you think Nemo locks the three passengers and drugs them? Thank you for listening to today's chapter. If you would like to discuss the questions, follow me on the Crack Open a Classic podcast Instagram page and comment on today's chapter's post. If you like this podcast, please share it with others so we can get the word out about more classics. If you would like to suggest a book to be read, email me at crackopenaclassicpodcast at gmail.com. Check back tomorrow for the next chapter in this adventure.